Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan, and welcome to part nine, the second to last part of our Let's Read a Game Publishing Agreement series. If you haven't followed the rest of the parts, please do. We've been going through every word of the publishing agreement that publisher Raw Fury has very graciously put out there to the public to hopefully help you get a better understanding of the kinds of things that go into an agreement like this. The parts are, as you saw on that playlist, but also you can see an overview here. We are in part nine, but we've talked about who owns the IP, how the game is actually going to be made and marketed, who's going to put money in various places, and how the profits are ultimately going to be shared. We've talked about the vast bulk of the substance in this agreement, which leaves us with this fairly glibly titled part nine, all the rest. But while the provisions we're going to read through today are standard in concept, they can vary in significant ways in scope and what's actually in the document. So you're always going to want to read through this very closely, even if a lot of it is potentially what we might call boilerplate, because there are going to be so many common concepts across contracts. Almost all contracts are going to end with something called general provisions, as you see here, or miscellaneous, or just the overall kind of stuff that you need to make sure that the contract works overall. With that as background, let's take a look at some of the substantive items in here so that we can talk about what choices have been made by Raw Fury, why they will work for you or not work for you, and exactly what they mean. And when you hire a lawyer to go through your contract, this is the kind of thing that they'll do. They'll go through the various substantive points in the document, hopefully highlight exactly what is happening in there so that you can decide whether the partner that has proposed the contract is right for you, whether you want to try to negotiate things, whether they want to try to negotiate things with you, and overall just to get a feeling for what's happening. Section 23A, assignment. Neither party shall have the right to assign this agreement or any of its rights nor obligations hereunder without the prior written consent of the other party, which consent shall not be unreasonably withheld. So there are a couple of things happening here, right? As we've talked about with respect to this contract, a lot of the terms are made fair by being mutual. One of the easiest things that you can do when you're negotiating a contract is to say, okay, if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. And if you want this term, we'll just make it apply to both parties. And then you can see how the other party proposing it reacts. If they don't like it so much, then we can talk about the language on a rhetorical basis. that says, well, why don't you like it if it's good enough for me? And you can have that conversation. Raw Fury has throughout its document made almost every provision that can be made mutual, mutual, which helps understand exactly where the parties align and gets the language into a place that's mostly acceptable. In this particular provision, we see that you can't assign the agreement. You can't take your rights and obligations under the agreement and Raw Fury can't pass it off to another publisher. You can't pass your obligations off to another developer, etc., etc., without the consent of the other party. Now that if it ended there, it would be the end of the story, and it would make a lot of sense. It would protect both sides. And then you have this proviso at the end that says, which consent shall not be unreasonably withheld, which sets a standard under the law that says, basically, you have to consent to an assignment unless you have a good reason not to. And if it comes down to it, if you choose to not give that consent, they could potentially sue you, one side or the other, if you don't feel that their reason is reasonable. And that provides a certain amount of protection for Raw Fury to potentially sell to a bigger publisher if it wanted to, or for the developer to do the same. But it also creates a kind of exposure risk to say you can't block some assignments because unreasonable 
is a pretty hard standard to hit. The proviso in this provision says, basically, you're going to give your consent in most circumstances. And you have to read it that way to understand that really both parties are going to have the ability to assign this agreement in most circumstances. Then we get section B, non-disparagement. The parties acknowledge and agree not to make any statements, written or verbal, or cause or encourage others to make any statements, written or verbal, that defame, disparage, or in any way criticize the personal or business reputation, practices, products, or conduct of the other party, its employees, associates, or partners. The parties acknowledge and agree that this prohibition extends to statements, written or verbal, made to anyone, including but not limited to the news media, on forums, blogs, or any social network. Now, this is one of those provisions that you really want to make sure you understand. And one of the reasons that you read through the general provisions or the miscellaneous section, because this is an actual ongoing obligation, perpetual in nature, for both parties to not say anything bad about the other party really forever. And it covers almost anything. You cannot in any way criticize the practices, products, or conduct of the other party or the personnel associated with that party. And that this includes things that we wouldn't ordinarily assume it would necessarily include. Things like forum posts and blogs or social network, a Facebook post, a tweet. Uh, And I think that's wise, certainly from the publisher's point of view, because that's how so much information gets out there in the world of video games. But understand what this means. Developer doesn't deliver for you if you're on Raw Fury's side and you think they stole your money. You can't go out there on Twitter with that. You can't go out there on Facebook with that. Same the other direction. You think Raw Fury didn't do its job in marketing your game. You have agreed that no matter what they have done or not done, you are not going to go out there with that information. And that's all well and good for the parties here, but you can certainly see how a bad actor, either on the developer or publisher side, can use a provision like this to hide their bad acts if you've got a potential contractual liability for exposing them to the world. Now, from a corporate lawyer's perspective, this is totally normal. I expect something like this. It's a little bit broader uh, than I usually see. I might object a little bit to the or in any way criticize uh, rather than just defame and disparage because I think you can make pointed comments about a relationship uh, that are uh, constructively critical, that don't defame or disparage and just talk about why or why not a specific relationship didn't necessarily work for you. This would void all of that. And if a lawyer were to look at this and you were to ask, can I make this tweet? Chances are with the breadth of a paragraph like this, you shouldn't talk about the other party at all because you can run into problems and that might or might not be okay with you. Then we get notices, which is, you know, a pretty boring kind of concept, but it's an important one because there are things that could happen in the world in this relationship that one or the other side has to talk to you about. So it's important to read this section and understand how that's going to happen. Here it says all notices and other items from one party to the other hereunder will, unless herein indicated to the contrary, unless there's a provision in the agreement that says we're going to send a formal letter or something like that to you, it will be sent by email addressed to developer at the developer's email address and to publisher at the raw fury email addresses. That's important to know. Even important stuff about our financing, our revenue, our profit sharing, the marketing plans, whatever it might be, we anticipate that the contact is going to be primarily through email and you shouldn't expect to get physical mail or anything else. 
Any notice shall be sent by email now into section D and shall be deemed complete at the time of response by the other party. That makes sense. If you respond to the email, I can assume you got it. Or 24 hours after receipt, whichever occurs first. So that's another important piece to know. You are, for purposes of this contract, assumed to have received the notice if it's sent to an email in this section C and it's 24 hours later. So if there's something really important that should be acted upon, a judge or another third party reading this contract can say, well, you had, by virtue of this provision right here, an understanding of what was in that notice 24 hours after it was sent, which can affect your rights and obligations on both sides. You have to know how this concept works before you sign on to that agreement. Then we get to governing law. This is one of the most important sections in a miscellaneous or general provisions uh, section like this one. This is going to tell you under what law your contract is to be read. And most often, I would usually headline this by saying governing law an exclusive venue or something like that. It will tell you where you have to prosecute a dispute, where you actually have to have your fight. And when you're talking about entering into an agreement with a publisher and that publisher is in Sweden, this can have an impact on how likely or how able you are to dispute a certain thing happening in the contract. Looking at this section, it says this agreement shall be governed by the laws of Sweden. Now, I don't know the laws of Sweden. You might want to hire somebody like local counsel to Sweden to evaluate this for you. I can tell you how the contract reads in the United States or more specifically in Michigan, where I am uh, licensed to practice law. But my clients enter into contracts governed by all sorts of laws. And all we can say is, hey, that's going to be Swedish law. And more fulsomely, any dispute, controversy, or claim arising out of or in connection with this agreement or the breach, termination, or invalidity thereof shall be finally settled by arbitration administered by the Arbitration Institute of the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce. So two things happen in that sentence. One, you as a developer are giving up your right to a trial, either by judge or by jury, and you are instead agreeing to arbitrate this claim. Now, you probably see all sorts of news articles, whether in the game industry or not, disparaging the concept of arbitration. I will tell you, as a commercial lawyer, I don't have a problem with arbitration as a concept. It's really up to the parties and what works for them. I don't know that it has the benefits that people that are really pro-arbitration suggest that it does in terms of time or expense or efficiency or things like that, but I don't have an issue with the choice in and of itself. You are agreeing to that though, and if you're the developer and if you're rough here, you need to know, hey, we're agreeing to arbitrate this. And more importantly, from my perspective, we're agreeing to arbitrate it in Stockholm, Sweden. We're agreeing to arbitrate it in Raw Fury's home turf. Now, generally speaking, it's going to be somebody's home turf and it doesn't make sense for it to necessarily be the developer, at least not in the publisher's form of contract that they provide here. But if you've got a problem with that, obviously it would be prohibitively expensive to dispute a contract and have to move your team and your lawyers and whoever to an arbitration that happens potentially a world away from you. You can try to negotiate these kinds of things and say, well, okay, maybe we shouldn't have an exclusive venue. It'll just be settled by arbitration. And we'll just leave it blank. And then either side can bring an arbitration where they will. That can get a little messy. Maybe you can have a provision that says whoever is trying to dispute something can bring it in their home jurisdiction. Uh, and so you would have your jurisdiction from wherever you are as a developer. They would have Stockholm uh, is theirs if they're trying to dispute something. And then you have a kind of 
home and away feeling uh, to a provision like this, but it's just not that unusual. The most important thing to know is that it is required of you and then and it will potentially be a barrier to your seeking redress under the contract if getting to Sweden and potentially having a long-term arbitration there is going to be expensive or difficult for you. If you're already in Sweden, it's not as big of a deal. The rules for expedited arbitrations of the Arbitration Institute of the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce shall apply. We're going to use fast arbitration to the extent we can. The place of arbitration shall be Stockholm, and the arbitration proceedings shall be conducted in the English language unless otherwise agreed by the parties. And that's an important provision whenever you're dealing with an international contract is to set the language that it takes place in. A lot of the times that's going to be English just because of the breadth of it in the commercial sphere. Then we get the next provision, which is a survival provision. The representations, warranties, indemnification, termination, and confidentiality obligations set forth in this agreement shall survive the termination of this agreement by either party for any reason. So you've got a contract and then it terminates. If you don't talk about survivability, if you don't mention it at all, the natural assumption of a third party, the court reading through your contract is when a contract terminates, all of its terms cease to exist. They cease to apply to the parties at issue. So you have a provision like this to say, yep, that's fine. When we terminate, we mean to end the relationship, but there are certain things that should still survive that termination. So you say confidential information. Hey, we've got a provision here that says you're going to keep our information confidential now and forevermore. That needs to survive the termination because it needs to continue to protect our confidential information. We've got reps and warranties here talking about ownership of the intellectual property. And this agreement actually specifies that we have rights in it, one side or the other, depending on how the termination went down. That needs to survive. The authority to enter into the agreement needs to survive. The overall promises that you've made that got us to the point that this contract was entered into, they need to survive, as does the indemnity here, because various sides have agreed to indemnify one or the other for things like infringement. That rep is a little use if I can't get redress, if I can't get some money for the fact that apparently you stole the intellectual property to make your video game, or in the alternative that Raw Fury has done something bad uh, on their side of things. The term and termination provision might seem like an odd inclusion here for survival, and it doesn't really survive to the extent it relates to the termination itself. But remember, if you think back to the section of this series, one of the things that happens on termination and in the language of the contract is it talks about who has to deliver what to various sides. And after the game has been released, what happens to advances and monies owed and things like that. So you have to have certain provisions of these survive the termination of the agreement because they talk about what happens on and after that termination. There's really nothing controversial here, but you can expect to see a provision like this that identifies certain things that survive or a more umbrella term that is something along the lines of what by its nature would be implied to survive a termination shall so survive a termination of this agreement. That's what I see a lot of the times in contracts like that. The problem with that, of course, is it's a little bit ambiguous. You essentially are depending on one or the other side slash the third party judge to determine exactly what by its nature should survive termination, even though that's not a terribly controversial analysis. Then we get amendments. This is another important one. No supplement, modification, amendment, waiver, termination, or discharge of this agreement shall be binding. You can't change this unless fully and explicitly agreed upon by both parties in a traceable and provable way or executed in writing by a duly authorized representative of each party to this agreement. Should either party explicitly request such execution and formal addition to this agreement? So 
this is one of those areas which is pretty standard. You want to be able to say, hey, you can't change this agreement unless we both agree to it. It's a little bit unusual from my perspective because I don't usually see this concept that it could possibly be amended without a writing, a written instrument, because you always want that record of what changes the parties have agreed to. So if I were sitting in the room, this is the kind of thing where I say, let's just stick with the executed in writing. It shouldn't be a big deal if both parties are explicitly agreeing to something rather than having the standard of there's an explicit agreement and we can show it in writing if we need to, if one side requests it. But you know, if Raw Fury didn't want to move on this, this proviso at the end saying I can always explicitly request an execution does protect me on the developer side if I remember to explicitly request such execution. So I'd rather have it always say an amendment shall be done in writing by both parties. They add a little proviso here to concept out that it wouldn't necessarily require that writing. I don't love it, but it also probably isn't too terribly damaging. No partnership is a concept that you will see in almost every contract. Nothing in this agreement shall constitute or be deemed to constitute a partnership, association, joint venture, or other cooperative entity between the parties, and neither of the parties shall have any authority to bind the other party in any way, except as provided for in this agreement. And you might think that this is a joint venture. In real world terms, it is. It's a venture between two parties. It's jointly undertaken. In legal terminology, it's not. You don't want to take on the liability of the other party. You don't want the other party to be able to bind you. You don't want to deal with tax authorities or employment law authorities suggesting that one or the other's personnel are truly employees of the other party. So you have in the contract a specific delineation that, hey, we are just contractors. You shouldn't read this to be a formal legal entity, a partnership, association, joint venture, or what have you. Entire agreement. This provision is again standard for a section like this. This agreement and any appendices or exhibits here too constitute the complete and entire agreement of the parties and supersedes all previous communications, oral or written, and all other communications between them relating to the subject matter hereof. Now, what is that provision doing? It's saying that the phone call or the meeting at the day spa that we had to talk about what your publishing agreement might look like, that's not to be read as enforceable once we have this agreement in place. We are agreeing to the very specific relationship that these two parties are entering into in this agreement and everything else that led to this shall not be read against one or the other party as part of the conversations. And that's an important concept on both sides because you want one place, the four corners of the document that each side can point to, to explain exactly what the rights and obligations of the two parties are. That believe it or not, helps avoid problems. Even if you think they promised you a little bit more and that didn't wind up in the formal agreement if you're on one side or the other, that's important because litigation is expensive and ambiguity creates litigation. So if you can point to an entire agreement, what we also call a merger provision and say, this is the whole thing, nothing else counts, then that's all you're actually litigating or here arbitrating. Force majeure, no party shall be responsible for delays or failure of performance relating from acts beyond the reasonable control of such party, including war, power failures, floods, earthquakes, and other natural disasters. This is the kind of place where today in 2021, we're seeing a lot of folks add specifically pandemic and epidemic to this list, but it's also considered an act of God provision. It basically says, and again, this is made mutual, so it's fair to both parties, that if something happens that is completely outside your control, a meteor hits your building and you can no longer develop for a little while, of course, 
the provisions of this agreement are told for a period. Now, there's also very often other provisions as part of a force majeure provision that explain, okay, but if it goes on for 12 months or 18 months or what have you, then we can terminate. And it's not going to be a termination where a lot of things happen badly to one side or the other, but we can't just have an infinite obligation to each other because it took a while to rebuild your building after that meteor hit. Uh, So this is a lightly framed force majeure, but again, it's mutual. uh, And so ultimately it's fair. In K and L here, we have the provisions that allow you to sign this thing in a modern way. First, counterparts. This agreement may be executed in one or more counterparts, each of which when taken together shall be deemed to constitute one and the same instrument. I think my fingers can almost type out that sentence uh, because I've used it so often in contracts. But suffice it to say, what it says is you can sign the signature page and it doesn't have to be the same page. 99% of deals that get done, at least in my line of work, I can't opine as to other lawyers, of course, are not done in person. There's no closing room. There's not usually the, the pens and the paper on a conference table somewhere. They are what we call through the remote exchange of documents. And that means that unless you're piecing together signatures and moving things around a PDF and copying and pasting, what you're going to wind up with at the end of the day is a signature from one party on the page and a signature from the other party on the same page, but with not the two signatures on the same page themselves. So what you wind up doing to execute an agreement is that you have a bunch of signature pages that essentially layer in all the signatures. And this says, that's totally fine. That is still signing the same document. Going along with that is subsection L here, electronic signatures. Electronic signatures on this agreement shall be deemed originals for all purposes. And that's the other component of the remote exchange of documents. We also aren't collecting originals. For the most part, there are certain regulatory and statutory instances where originals are required or that testimony that originals are held by someone in some file folder somewhere are required. But ultimately, you can sign with DocuSign. You can sign with a picture on your phone. You can sign with a scan uh, from uh, the agreement page and that you get that over to the lawyers and they put all the pages together. And counterparts and electronic signatures allow for that remote exchange and allow for lower costs in terms of getting everybody in the same place at the same time. And then the very last provision, we're going to read this. You will have read through with me in nine parts, really every bit of language in this Rough Fury publishing agreement. If any provision of this agreement shall be adjudicated to be invalid or unenforceable. So you get there and the court says under Swedish law, this provision isn't allowed. What should happen? Well, one thing that could possibly happen is if this provision isn't allowed, then the whole document goes away and nobody really wants that. This provision says, instead, it shall be construed by limiting and reducing it so as to be enforceable or eliminating it without invalidating the remaining provisions of this agreement. So it says, okay, judge, fair enough. For whatever reason, this provision is illegal. Don't kill the whole agreement. Reduce it. If it's something like an interest rate and it's too high to be allowed by law, just reduce it to what's the maximum available under the law and let the agreement go. Or if there's just no world in which a provision like this will be allowed here under Swedish law, eliminate it, but let the rest of the contract go forward. And that's good for both parties. It can potentially lead to some thorny issues if something that one or the other party thought was absolutely critical to the relationship between the two sides gets killed and the agreement survives Uh, that can be a problem. But hopefully if you're using counsel and you're using potentially local counsel in reviewing an agreement that's before you, either on the publishing or development side, you have a lawyer that can't promise what a judge will say. They never can, but can say, well, there's no reason to believe that 
provision X would be terminable by a court. Uh, and so you don't necessarily have to take that into account when you're agreeing to these provisions. Then the very last thing is the signature blocks here. We see here the publisher signing up here. We see here the developer signing down here. The last thing I will leave you with is what's important to note when you're looking at signatures is to make sure that the right parties are signing the thing. One of the big pieces of trouble uh, that an individual or small business can get into is by signing a contract, not as you see here on behalf of developer, but if you just killed this language and you didn't see this here and it just said agreed to and accepted by John Smith, then John Smith is the one with the rights and obligations under the agreement and potentially problematically so for the limitations of liability that are the reasons that you have an entity in the first place. You don't want a problem with this contract to mean that Raw Fury could take your house. And in the same way, Raw Fury doesn't want the developer to be signing with just Jonas Antonson here. They want to be signing Raw Fury. So you want to make sure that there's something that says on behalf of publisher or more usually in the case of contracts that I work with, something that says here Raw Fury by title date and then developer name by title date. You just always want to make sure that the parties that are at the top of the contract, the ones that are actually entering into all this, are rightly called out in the signature blocks and the execution of your agreement. So a shorter episode here, still important stuff, but not the substance of making a game or related to it that we saw in earlier parts. Now, as of the end of part nine here, as I said, you have read through with me every single provision of this agreement. We have reordered them to better kind of thematically establish what's happening, but we've gone through every provision. I made sure that when I roadmapped out this series. In the very last part of this series, we're going to be talking about what we learned about owning the game and marketing the game and overall how this agreement might go uh, in the real world. So please check out part 10. It'll be coming soon. Otherwise, thank you for catching Virtual Legality with me. If you saw this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, so much for listening. I will catch you on the next Virtual Legality and of course, the conclusion to this series. Thanks again. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.